Well, turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, we're going to wrap up this three-part study uh, in our grow groups calling Getting Control of Our Lives. We're dealing, and here's what we've seen. We've seen our self-image, we've seen time, and then this morning we're going to see our possessions. So our self-image, our time, our possessions, all of those are vital. We want to make an impact for Christ, but we can't be tossed back and forth uh, by every wind of doctrine. We can't be tossed back and forth by our flesh. We've got to take charge. So we live in a world that's out of control. When you think about it, there's wars and nations and economy and weather and everything else. And sometimes we feel out of control. We say, how do we view ourselves? And sometimes we view ourselves and we view ourselves negatively. We see ourselves and we say, well, God could never use me. In fact, let me just say this. I got a phone call from a guy who listens to us on the website, and he's in uh, eastern West Virginia. That's where he is. He's been listening to us, but he called me, and he said that he'd been in ministry and done stuff, and then he messed up. And now he's rolling again and everything, but he says, I just don't think I'm worthy to ever be used by God. So I said, were you ever worthy to be used by God? Are any of us worthy to be used by God? The answer is what? No, it's the grace of God. And I told him, look, we, we look at your... His self-image was, I've messed up, and, you know, God can't use me. I said, no, no, that's exactly what Satan wants you to think, isn't it? He wants you to think you're nothing. You're a child of God. You have the power of the Holy Spirit. You have the Bible. You have spiritual gifts. As long as you're alive on this earth, be used by God. So we talked about our self-image, who we are in Christ and our security. And then we talked about our time and the whole idea of, of, of that. And, and there's not enough time. It's always a hurry thing. And then we talked about our possessions. Uh, just mentioned it. There's never enough money, never enough of anything. And for that first week, we did spend the time on our foundation, which is our, our self-image. And that is so vital. And then we talked about time, live wisely in our time, uh, in the time God's given to us. And this morning, possessions. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at a warning from Scripture. And see, if anybody should take the warning seriously, it's us, because we're the richest people in the world. And as I just said, most people in our country that make $30,000 a year, some people say, well, that's not very much. It, in the whole world, that's one top 1%. So if God looked at us and said, how you doing as far as the whole rest of the world is concerned, almost all of us would say, we, we're doing pretty good. Okay, well then there's a warning. A warning. And then we're going to talk about taking charge of our money. There's kind of a practical thing. Then we're going to go over biblical giving, which we all know, but sometimes we forget about it. And then we're going to end it with contentment. So there's a lot in this little passage. Now, uh, we've, got, we've got more time than we normally have. And uh, so when we get to the end, if we stop early... Just think about Bible questions. I've got two we'll go over. But let's talk about uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6. We realize everything we have comes from God. Have you ever thought about that? Everything we have? 1 uh, Timothy chapter 6, look at verse 7. He says, we have brought what? What does it say? We have brought what? Nothing into the world so we can take nothing out either. Right? This last, I mean, Friday and Saturday, I was involved with two funerals. Brought nothing in, take nothing out. Everything that you have is just as you're passing through. I mean, that's basically what it boils down to. Everything we have is just what we're passing through. Everything that we have comes from God while we're on this earth. We need to control because, listen, we live in the richest place in the world. Richest everything in the world. I, mean, I don't think we realize just how amazing it is. I remember the first time, the, the first time I went to Mexico, I went with a, with a mission trip to Mexico and went across that border. And as soon as we crossed that border, I went, oh, my gosh. And a paper blowing everywhere, people using the bathroom in the streets, kids running around with no clothes on, people begging for things. I mean, it just, I'm going, I just stepped across that barrier right there. And this world is a totally different world. And... I had a friend that when I was down there, I talked to a pastor, and his son, his son would come to the United States, go across, I mean, wrong, come, go across the United States, work for three months and come back, and he said, I make more in three months than I make in an entire year in Mexico, so I go and I make the money for my family. So we are the richest. So here's the warning for us. I want you to turn, look at First Timothy chapter 6, look at verse 17. Here's the warning from the scriptures for us. Here's what it says. Instruct those who are rich in this present world. Who's rich in this present world? Every one of us in this room are. You know, think about it. We're rich in this present world. Not to be conceited 
or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things. What? To enjoy. Listen, sometimes people want to make people who have more money uh, feel guilty, like you shouldn't have that money, and you should give your money away, and you shouldn't enjoy it, and you shouldn't have a big screen TV, and you shouldn't have this, and you shouldn't have this, and think about the poor people in other parts of the world. And the, Listen, he says he's given us all things to do what? To enjoy. So listen, here's the warning. He says, be careful. Instruct those who are rich in this present world, that's us, not to be conceited, because it's, it's easy to be conceited. It's easy to say we're better than others because they don't have anything like we have. That's the grace of God. Remember? What did we say? Everything we have comes from who? Everything we have comes from God. It's his grace. Let me ask you a question. Was Abraham a rich man? He was so rich compared to those people around him. Isaac was too. Jacob was too. Joseph ended up being very wealthy. How about, how about uh, King David? How about Solomon? Solomon's the richest man that ever lived. I mean, so when you say wealth, it doesn't mean wealth is sinful or bad. It means God has chosen to give us things, and we are responsible for using those things. So first of all, he says, those who are rich in this present world, don't be conceited. Don't put your hope on riches. It's called uncertainty of riches because, you know, it can come and it can what? It can go. I mean, before you know it, it's gone. Uh, I used to say, you know, people say money talks. I always say, yeah, my money talks. My money says goodbye. You know, it's true. It talks. But think about it. But, but put, your, put your, he says, put your hope on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. So I want you to start off by saying, listen, we are the richest people in the world. And every one of us in this room are rich compared to the rest of the world. And so let's don't put our hope on riches because they, they could be gone tomorrow. They come and they go. But put it on God. And we don't need to be conceited at all. But put our hope on God who gives us all things to richly, it basically gives us all things to enjoy. So whatever God gives us, enjoy it and say, thank you, Lord. It is your grace. It is your grace. And we'll talk more about these possessions in just a minute. Now, how important is it to have a control over possessions and things and money and those kind of things? It's important because it gives us a lot of information. First of all, our use of finances is a good indication of how we're doing spiritually. I know that, I know that doesn't make sense always necessarily, but how you deal with what God's given you is going to indicate a lot of where you are spiritually. Prof. Hendricks used to say, I can look at two books and tell how you're doing. Your date book, what you do with your time, and your checkbook, what you do with your money. I can look at those two, the prophet say, I can look at those two things, what you do with your time and what you do with your money. I can tell a lot about you. I can tell where you're you growing spiritually or not just from that. So the use of finances is a good indication of how we're doing spiritually. There's a second thing. Now, this is something that you don't always think about, but how we deal with our possessions and money will affect and shape other areas of our lives. Let's think about this. It'll affect our relationships. Think about this. If you're not handling your finances, you're not handling, you've got debt, you've got prayer. If you borrow all kind of money, you've got all kind of debt, you've got conflict, it affects your marriage. Uh, do, do, do both people have to work? I mean, how, does, how, how is this going to work out? Do you have any peace of mind? Are people calling you and saying, you owe us this? Are you saying, we don't have enough money to buy this? What are we going to do? And so how you deal with your finances affects your relationships. A lot of people don't even think about that. How about this one? It affects your recreation, your free time. You know what? You want to go, you want to go uh, uh, on, a, on a vacation. You going to borrow money to go on a vacation or do you, do you save the money? When you go on a vacation, you're going to say, we're going on a vacation, but I put it on my credit card. We've got to figure out how to pay this back when I get back. Is that, is that how you go on vacation? Or do you go on vacation and say, we saved money all year and we're ready to go and we're not, we don't have that pressure? Uh, can we go to this? Well, we don't have the money to go to this. Why don't we have the money to go to this? Well... And so we start raising those. It affects that. It also affects ministry, by the way. It affects ministry. Will you give to your church? Will you give to missions? Will you share with others? Based on what God has given you, it, how you deal with your money. I've had people say, oh, we'd love to give more. We just don't have anything to give. I say, why not? Why don't you have anything to give? I mean, is it true? Why don't you have anything to give, right? What's the average giver in the United States give to his church? Now, let me just start off by saying, in an average church in the United States, and we're not talking about visitors, we're talking about people who go to that church all the time, half of them never give to their church and have never given to their church, half. That's in the United States. The other half, what do you think the average giving of the other half is? It's 1.7%. 1.7, not 
1.7%. And it's getting lower every year. So how you control, because some people say, oh, I'd just love to give. I'd love to give to people who go on missions. I'd love to give to these people who are in need. I just don't have anything. Why, don't, why, why not? Why not? Because how we deal with our money is going to affect so many different things, even ministry. And last but not least, your whole future. Your whole future and retirement. And have, or do you save? Do you put things back? What, what are you going to live like if, when, if, when and if you retire? And there's many people who say, I can never retire. People who say, well, I, I can retire, but it won't be any money. money. I read a study, and, and I don't know, this didn't sound right to me, but the study said that about 80% of the people who retire have less than $1,000 actually saved. You know, and so there's just not much there. So how do we view possessions and material things? Okay, because we've already seen the warning. Be careful with the richest people in the world. Be real careful on how we think about that. Second, we've already seen that how we deal with finances, possessions, money, that's going to affect our time. It's going to affect our recreation. It's going to affect our relationships. It's going to affect ministry. It's going to affect our future. It's going to affect all that. So then how do we deal with all this? How do we view possessions, money, material things. Because we already talked about time last week. We talked about our time, what we to do with that. Now we're going to talk about these things. First of all, realize we are stewards. And we don't, I don't think a lot of people even think about that way, but we're stewards. All that we have comes from God, we are, and we are entrusted to use it wisely as we live on this earth. Listen, uh, people, I use it this way. If, if you came into my office and my desk, and my computer, that's not my office. I, I don't own that office. I don't own that desk. I don't even own that computer. It's y'all, as a church, said, hey, you can use that office, JB, and guess what? We'll get you a desk there. But that's not really your desk because once I'm gone, that's somebody else's desk, right? Right? And so I realized that I get to use those things, right? Well, guess what? Everything I have in my whole life, not just about this church, but everything has been given to me by God and been entrusted to use it for his glory. So when you say our house and our car and our clothes, and listen, who gave you the house? Who gave you the cars? Who gave you the clothes? Who gave you the ability to earn the money? I mean, think about it. Everything we have. And so God says, I've given you these things. Now I want you to wisely use them for my glory. See, the old saying used to be somebody used to say, well, okay, I got this, and 10% belongs to God, and 90% belongs to me. No, God, every bit of it's God. It all belongs to him. And he says, how are you going to use my stuff? How are you going to use the stuff I gave you? Listen, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7 says, what do you have that God did not give you? He writes to the Corinthians, and they're fussing and they're griping and everything in their church. And so he writes them, and he says, what do you have that God didn't give you? What's the answer? Nothing, everything. And he said, so why are you doing this? And then the second, Colossians 3 said, whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father by him. Whatever you do in word or deed, everything is what? It goes back to him. It's all his. So how can we use wisely what God has given to us? You know that I have a class that I teach occasionally I, because we've got so many different classes in the, in the SBI, but there's a class on biblical finances. I think I taught it not too long ago. I've taught it, and I, I actually love teaching it. You know, it's like, 13 or 14 lessons, and we go through all kind of things. I mean, everything. We do with the biblical basis for all our finances, and then we talk about budgets and everything else. And so one of the things we want to talk about is, and, and this is the name, how do we take charge? Okay, you know that, you keep, that we're rich, so we've got to be real careful and not put our hope in riches. We know that our money and possessions and things affect all those areas of life. We know that we are stewards of whatever God's given us. And he's given us everything, everything that you have, everything that you have, your clothes, your, even, even your time, but we're talking more about possessions now. Everything that we have is, is that he's allowed us to have it, to use it for his glory. So how are we going to take charge of this? How are we going to know what to do? Because we said a while ago, oh, I'd like to give more, but I don't have any money. Well, I'd like to do this, but we don't have. Why don't you have any money? We're the richest people in the world. If we're the richest people in the world, when we don't have any money, what about the people who are not the... What about the 99% that's under us in the world? Do they go around saying, we don't have any money because the richest people in the world don't have any money? I, I've always thought there's a lot of money. Don't you think there's a lot of money? I mean, if people can give millions of dollars to build a football stadium, 
I mean, there's a lot of money. There's a lot of money out there. If somebody can pay somebody $24 million to be a movie star, be in a movie and pay them $24 million, if somebody can say, we'll give you a seven-year deal, $94 million to play basketball, isn't that, there's a lot of money out there. Don't you think there's a lot of money? So when we say there's not any money, I think there's a lot of money. We're saying, give me that money, right? No, that's what, but the bottom line is, how do we deal with the money we have? Well, the bottom line is a spending plan. You've got to have a budget. If you don't have a budget, shame on you. Because God has entrusted you with possessions and money. Finances. You have jobs. Most of you have jobs. You go earn money. There's a paycheck. It comes in somewhere. What are you doing with that money? Are you systematically saying, here's what God's given me, and here's how I'm going to use it? If not, if not, shame on you. Because you've got to wisely use a budget is a spending plan. And see, when people say budget, they go, I don't want to put on budget because a budget's restricting. Not a budget, that's a spending plan. You're deciding how to spend what God has given to you. And so I tell people all the time, make a budget. I ask people, I say, have you made a budget? And they go, uh, well, sort of. I said, there's no sort of budget. Either you make a budget or you don't. I mean, it's like sort of pregnant. There's no sort of pregnant and there's no sort of budget. I mean, you either are or you're not, right? So have you made a budget? Have you put it down? Have you put the categories down? Have you put the money in the categories? And are you spending what you said you're going to spend? See, that's what it boils down to. And so three reasons, really, for having a spending plan. Number one is that you know where your money's going. I have to tell a quick story. Young couple, uh, when I first came to Stillwater, there was a young couple, and uh, uh, they had a brand new baby. He was six months old. And they were going to our church. They were uh, three of the uh, 11 people. But anyway, so they were there, and we were talking to them, and one day they said, we're kind of in trouble. And they were both still college students, by the way. And I said, what do you mean you're kind of in trouble? And he said, well, I work part-time, and she works part-time, and we got our money and everything, but we, we, we don't give to the church at all. We don't have any money, and we owe my grandmother. She, we borrowed some money from my grandmother, and we're supposed to be paying like $50 a month back to her, and we don't pay it at all. And so we don't, I said, so, and they said, would you come over and help us? I said, I'd be glad to. So we went over there, and I said, let's make a budget. Let's talk about all the money you have coming in. And we started talking, here's his job, and how many hours he got to work, and here's her job, and how many hours she got to work as they were going to school. And we added the whole thing up, and I said, okay, let's start going down the list. What about, how much you bring for food? What about, how much is your rent? How much is, and we went all the way down the list. And guess what? They they had money left over. They didn't even realize it. And they kept saying, we didn't know where it's going. Of course you don't know where it's going. If you don't have a budget, if you don't have a spending plan, how do you know where your money's going? You may go and buy 16 candy bars, and you say, what happened to the money? I don't know. We bought it in candy bars. Okay, right? But you never know what you're doing. So we made the list. And by the way, by the way, we got through the list. He had money to give to the church and to pay his grandmother back. And money left over. It's just he didn't know where his money going. That's why having a budget. You should have a budget. You should have a spending plan. If you need some form, I got them in the office. I help you. If you said, ah, we never really had a budget. Somebody help me. I help you. I said, we'll make a budget. We'll talk about how it fits together. And we'll talk about it more in just a minute. But it helps you know where your money's going. Second, it helps your plan. There's wisdom there. Listen, I've had people come up and say, I don't know what I'm going to do. I said, what? My car insurance is due next week. I said, did you not know that you had car insurance? Right? Well, yeah. Well, okay. So if it's, if it's $120 every six months, what do you do? You put back every month a certain amount of money until it adds up to 120 and then when the bill comes due, you pay the 120. You, that's part of a budget. I've had people say, I don't know what we're going to do. Christmas is coming. Ah, we didn't even know it was coming. We didn't even know there was going to be a Christmas this year, so we, couldn't, we hadn't even thought about buying presents, right? So what, that's what it does. It gives you wisdom and planning and the long-range things, savings, goals, daily, weekly, all of those kind of things. And then the third thing, you're under control. It takes the pressure off. The most amazing thing was to watch this young couple who were worried and worried and worried and worried, and we sat down and made a spending plan, and they went, we're in control. I said, you're exactly right. You're in control. You're now deciding where your money goes, and you're in control of it instead of it just coming. It, sometimes it comes in and goes out. You didn't even know. You weren't in control. You weren't telling your money what to do. Now you're telling your money what to do. And every one of us in this room, if you don't have a spending plan, you need to sit down and put this thing down and say, here's, here's the money I got coming in, and here is where it's going to be going out. And I'm going to be in control. Because we don't have that. Most people don't do that. And young people don't do that. Now, I know. I'm going to say something. 
all of us who are older, I guarantee you many of us in this room balance our checkbooks. But you get a certain age on down, they never balanced anything. And what they say is, I just make sure I have more money in there so that I'm okay. I said, how do you know you have more money in there? And how do you know what they're doing is right? And how do you know a mistake hasn't been made? How do you know what's going on? I, I, don't, I mean, listen, if I heard you to run my firm and you said, I run the firm, but I don't keep up with your money. I just, I just know there's more money in there. I said, I think you're fired. Yeah, because I want to know everything is coming in and everything is going out. And God has said, I have given to this you as your household. You better know what's coming in and you better know what's going out because you're accountable, right? You don't want to go before God and say, I didn't keep up. <laughs> I, I, I spent a lot. What'd you do with it? I don't know. I don't know where it went. So be under control. It is amazing that when you make a budget, even when you owe money, and you make a budget and, or a spending plan and you say, okay, now this is going to go to here. You say, wow, I'm in control for the first time. It's amazing. Okay, let's talk about the plan. And people always say this, save 10%, give 10%, spend the rest. I, I, I say that uh, save 10%, give 20%, <laughs> and then live on the rest. Because we're the richest people in the world. My gracious, you think we can live on 70%? Of course you can. And the bottom line is, just do, the bottom line is, you need to, as money comes in, you need to have a way to save, a savings plan. You need to have a giving plan. Listen, and we're going to talk about giving in a minute. We're going to talk about giving to the first fruits. We're going to talk about how you do it. And then you need to spend. And when I say spend, is you put together the categories in all of those kind of things. And it, it's amazing how many people say things like this? Well, you know, money comes in and, and, and just takes so much and we get to the end of the month and we really don't have enough money. We don't ever give because we run out and we don't ever really get to do this. And we're not really saving hardly anything because there's just never any money. It's because they're not in control. You might have to live a little bit lower than you're used to, but that's okay. You're still in the 1% of the whole world. Right? Now... Dave Ramsey, uh, if most of you have listened to him, and, and sometimes he's a little crude, uh, but he's really smart, and he has a plan that works. If the people in local churches would do the plan, we'd all be rich. Now, the goal of being rich is so you can live and give like no one else, right? And the goal of being rich is not to be rich. The goal of being rich is to be able to use by God to give things away and touch people's lives. Most of you know the baby steps of Dave Ramsey. And let me just remind this to you, that the first thing is you save $1,000. The reason you save $1,000 first is that when something breaks down, like I, something happened to my car the other day, I took it to uh, Ron. I said, hey, Ron, come listen to my car. Something wrong with it. He went, one Ten seconds, Ron knew exactly what was wrong with it. So we took it into the shop, $416 to fix it. I, I'm not worried about $416. Let me just tell you the truth. I got $1,000 saved right there. And that's for anything that happens, like if the air conditioning went out and they said it's going to be $800 to fix it, I got $1,000 set back. That's why Dave Ramsey says put back that $1,000, save it up, and get it back because when something happens, you don't have to put it on a credit card, you don't have to go borrow somehow. You've got the money on those kind of things. Most little breakdowns and things aren't $1,000. They're not. Sometimes there's really big things, but that's later on. But the bottom line is set that $1,000 back. Then the debt snowball is whatever debt you have from smallest to largest, you begin to pile, just say, I'm going to go full speed after that. And the key is the focus. You don't do all this other stuff. Second step is baby step two is debt snowball, and you go after that. If you guys have debts, if any of you have debts, right now you get to that $1,000, and then you, you attack your debts, and whether they're student loans or whether they're a credit card balance of $500 or 1000 or 5000 or whatever it is, you set that thing down, and you say, this is my smallest debt, and you attack it, and you get it, and you take the money you've given on that, and then you go to the next one. You pay the minimum on the ones, attack the smallest, and attack them. And before you know it, you're paying this stuff off, and you're watching it happen, and you're getting out of debt. And then after you get out of debt, you save three to six months' expenses, just according to where you are, what you're doing. Uh, but, and then we're not talking about everything, but we're talking about the basics that it would take you to live for a month, put back three months to six months. Then, after you get those three, now, by the way, what if every one of you in this room, and I don't know you, I don't know what you're doing, but what if every one of you in this room had no debt whatsoever and had three to six months saved in the checking in your bank account right now. Think what difference would it make? 
What difference would it make? You'd go, hey, I'm, I'm in pretty good shape. I'm pretty good. Okay. Then you begin, as he says, putting 15% of your income back, and four, five, and six can go together. You put money back for retirement. You begin to save college for your kids if you've got kids going to college one day, and then you begin to pay off your house. And then by the time you get to number seven is you have no debt whatsoever, even including your house. It can be done. I don't have a house payment. I paid off my house. I'm on number seven. Live and give like no one else. I love to give. I love to live. <laughs> okay? And, and, and so if you said to me, can you go to Branson? I go, I can go to Branson. I can go to Branson because I got some money set back to go to Branson if I want to go to Branson. I'm not going, I don't know if I can go to Branson because, first of all, I ain't got any kind of budget and I don't know what I got and I got all kind of debts. No. Let me challenge you. Do that. If you need the book, I have a book. I buy the books. I buy the Dave Ramsey Total Money Makeover book. I keep them in the office. If you would like one of those books, come by my office. I will give it to you. You can look at it. He explains all the baby steps and he explains all kind of things. It is great. I wish everyone in our church was at least to number three and had started on four, five, and six. But wouldn't it be great if all of us were seven? Wow. You know, when, when you get to the point of four, five, and six, and seven, and somebody comes up and says, you know, these mission people, they, they're the sweetest people, and they're going to go to the thing, but they need something, and you say, I'll give them a thousand bucks. Why? Because I don't owe anything. I don't owe any money on anything. I don't have any debt payments I'm making every week, every month. So, anyway, enough of that. But anyway, that's the spending plan, okay? Now, let's talk about, let's talk about this. Let's talk about the whole giving thing. Okay, and you've heard me say this so many times over the years. So this is nothing new. This is a challenge. Okay, and so we want to talk about how to give, the motive for giving, and the results of giving. And let's talk about this. Let's talk about how do we give, and we give free will giving. Now you've heard many of you. If I ask you to raise your hand, how many of you were taught you're to give a tenth? Probably most of you in this room would raise your hand. You want to raise your hand? How many of you are taught you're supposed to give a tenth? Okay, look at the hands. Okay, where in the Bible does it say you give a tenth? Does anybody know where in the Bible it says you give a tenth? Huh? Well, yeah, but it doesn't say give a tenth, does it? It says in Malachi, bring your tithes, plural, and offerings to the storehouse of the temple. The temple's gone. And, and by the way, this whole tithe system, there were three tithes in the Old Testament, not one. And it was to give to ensure uh, of the temple the priest, and the widows and orphans. And they gave 20% every year and 30% every three years, not counting free will offerings. That's the Old Testament giving. You get to the New Testament giving, it actually tells us how to give. Second Corinthians 9, 7, let a man give as he what? Purpose in his heart, not grudgingly in necessity. God loves a cheerful giver. Y'all know the verse, right? You're not under a tithe system. You've never been under a tithe system. Let me tell you something. If under law you gave 20 and 30%, what do you think you ought to give under grace? Yeah. <laughs> 100%. Hallelujah. Okay, let's do it. But the bottom line is we, we are under a grace giving. We give as we purpose in our hearts. And let me tell you, when you get control of your finances, you know what your heart says? Man, give, give. And let me just say this. If somebody said, well, what about a tenth? I said, listen, if you want to give a tenth, that's fine. I think, I think a tenth is a great starting place. Not 1.7 as a starting place. I think a tenth would be a great starting place for so many people because they've never understood how this fits. But you're not under a tithe system. If you want to give a tenth, I think that'd be wonderful since the average Christian gives 1.7, not 10%. But that's a starting point. That's a starting point. Listen, I didn't understand giving until I went to seminary. And when I say giving, they didn't teach me this in seminary. I learned it. I made a decision that when I got to seminary, I had no money. $600 a month was my total income. I had to pay 450 rent and live off the rest plus go to seminary. And I had nothing, but I made a decision of that $600 a month. I gave a portion away on the front end every time. I went all the way through seminary. I never borrowed one penny. I made it all the way through. The clothes that I had made it all the way through. Uh, at the grace of God in every aspect, one church gave me this. I mean, it just, I made it all the way through. And from that day forward, from going to seminary, I do the same thing. If you came up to me today and you said, I love you so much, I'd like to give you this, and you gave me something, I would take that and immediately give a portion away. 
I made a decision that anything I ever get, I give a portion away immediately. I never lack for anything. I never have lacked for anything. Gene, have we ever lacked for anything? Except maybe some of your clothes. No, no, I'm just kidding. No, no. <laughs> some of Brian's clothes. Where? Yeah, there he is. Yeah, yeah that's probably what we led. But, but the bottom line is you will never miss it. You say to yourself, God, I want to take a portion of what you give to me. And I'm going to give it away. And I'm going to give it away on the front end. It's called the first fruits. You don't wait till you bet pay. You say, I got a thousand bucks coming in. I'm going to give away two hundred. I'm just making that up. And I'm going to give it away on the front end. I'm going to save some of it. I'm going to live on the rest. And you trust God. And we'll get to it more in just a second. So we we have free will giving. We also have what we call planned giving. It's regular. You it's it's not just out of the blue, but you say, Here's what God has given me, and I'm going to Give a portion. When Paul wrote this, he wrote this to the Corinthians. He said, when you come together on the first day of the week, what's the first day of the week? What's the first day of the week? That's Sunday. No, first day of the week, Sunday. Sunday's first day of the week. Saturday's last day of the week. Saturday's the Sabbath. Sunday's not the Sabbath. Sunday's the Lord's day. First day of the week. He said, when you come together on the first day of the week, take up your collection. So we'll be doing that in just a little bit, okay? But that's the bottom line. You have a great opportunity and planned to give what God has given, give a portion what God has given to you. The second thing is, is the motive. Why, why do we give? Why do we give? And there are three big things. The first one is love. We give as an act of love. In 2 Corinthians 8, he says that when we give, it shows our love for God and our love for others. So when you give, think about this, when, when they bring the plate by or when you do it online or when you write a check, some other, whatever way you give, and there's all kind of ways to give. In fact, more and more people are giving through the Internet. More and more people of our church are giving through our online giving. I mean, you wouldn't believe that how much comes in online. Brian, am I right? Isn't it getting bigger and bigger? I mean, it started off as just barely, and now more and more money, is more people are using that kind of giving. And, and when you give, do you realize it's showing your love for God and your love for others? Because you know that that money comes in, and it's going to touch the lives. There's, what, 19 missionaries that that money goes to, and all kind of ministries. And when you think that these little children on Wednesday night are, are growing, where does the money come from to do that ministry? You do it. And so that that's, that's, shows your love for God. There's a second thing. It's an act of worship. When you give, it's an act of worship. Philippians 4.18, Paul said to the Philippians, they sent him money. Paul went to Philippi and got run out of town, and then he's at a different place. In fact, he was at Thessalonica, and Philippians sent him money. And he said, thank you for the gift as an act of worship. It was an act of worship for them. When they, so when you give, it's an act of worship. I mean, when, I always say to people, how do we worship on Sunday morning? Well, we, we sing, we pray, we study the Bible, and we give. Those are acts of worship. So whenever you give, and, and maybe a little bit you'll give today, or maybe you give online or something, just realize that when you give, it's you worshiping your God and Savior. But the third thing, it, this is the big one. This is it. It's, a, it's an act of trust. Listen, if I had $1,000 and I decided that on the front end I'm giving away $200, i am going to have to trust God that I can make it on 800 rather than 1000 And let me tell you something that is true. I've watched it from the time I went to seminary. I didn't really grasp the giving stuff until I went to seminary. But from the time I went to seminary all the way up to here, I realized that you're going to be better off. If I had $1,000 and I kept $1,000, or if I had $1,000 and I gave away 200 I will live better and things will be better for me with that 800 than it will be for the 1000 We're going to talk about something else in just a minute. But God takes care of us, and you're going to have to trust him. You're going to have to trust him on the front end that whenever you get anything and you say, I'm going to give away this portion. Somebody say, well, you might need it. No, no, I'm not going to need it. I'm trusting God. It's an act of worship. It's an act of love. And it's an act of trust. That's what it really is. So trust him. Now, one final thing, and that is the results. What happens when you give? What happens when you give? Guess what? There's blessing. 2 Corinthians 9, 6. He who sows sparingly reaps sparingly. He who sows bountifully reaps bountifully. As you give, you're blessed. Now, this, this is not your motive. The motive for giving is love, worship, 
and trust. That's your motive. This is just a result of giving. That means that when you give, God blesses you. It's just the way it is. Now, that's, that's not our motive. Now, sometimes you turn on the television, and you have those TV preachers, and they're telling you things like this. If you will send into our ministry, God will bless you. They're making the motive for giving blessing. That's not accurate. You're going to be blessed. That's not your motive. What I want to do with those people will say, uh, if you'll send in 200, God will send you 1,000. I want to write them and say, why don't you send me 200 and let God give you the 1,000? Right? It, you get more money if you do it that way. But the bottom line is, God's going to bless you. He's going to bless you. you I, I had no money in seminary. I had two suits. In those days, you had to wear suits to Dallas Seminary. You had to wear them every day. So on Tuesday, I wore one suit. On Wednesday, I wore the next suit. On Thursday, I wore that suit. On Friday, And then I, I, those suits were not in great shape when I went to seminary. Four years later, they were not in great shape, but they made it. And the moment I got a job and came to Stillwater, those suits just went to pieces. But God made them. They lasted the whole time I was in seminary. I had to tell you this. Okay, I, had, I can't cook, and I had no money. And so I'm working for State Farm in State Farm's office, and there's a little lady sitting back there smoking cigarette after cigarette. And she said, now, what do you do, J.B.? I said, I'm going to seminary. She said, oh, yeah, I know that. I know that. And, and she found out I didn't cook. She, didn't, she found out I didn't have any money. And so one day I walk in, and she says, oh, by the way, we had some leftovers, and I got it right here. Now, listen, all you have to do is heat it. You don't have to cook it. You just have to heat it. And did you know, for the first two years of seminary, every day I went to work, what do you think she did? And when her husband died, she called me and she said, will you come do the funeral? And my last year in seminary, their son was close to my size, and they called me and said, our son doesn't wear this suit anymore. How about you want this suit? God did that, didn't he? God did that. God, God blesses you. He takes care of you. Uh, one more story. I have to tell the story. We're, we're, bra we're here. Uh, Catherine is three years old. Sarah has just been born. I do something stupid like working out, and I hurt my neck. And so I hurt my neck, and it was so bad that they said, you're going to have to have an MRI. And I said, is that what it is, an MRI? I can't remember what it is. Anyway, i got to have an MRI. And I said, well, I, we didn't have any money. I mean, we're talking about Catherine, three years old, Sarah, just born. Uh, maybe the church had 50 people, 80 people, maybe 100, I don't know. Uh, we didn't have really any insurance, I don't think, much or whatever. And so they said, you're going to have to have an MRI. I said, how much is that MRI? And back in those days, it was $969. And we had no money, but I had to go get the MRI, so I got the MRI. And I laid in that thing, I like to kill me, because you know how hard it is for me to stay still. But anyway, so I got through that MRI, and guess what? We got a bill from Stillwater Medical, $969. And we said, because what do we always do? Whatever money we get, first thing we do is what? Give away. And one day, I drive to Corn, Oklahoma to do a wedding. Jean, we don't have, there's no cell phones in those days. So Jean's there with Catherine and Sarah. And I call her to tell her I made it to corn. And she says, something happened today. And I said, what happened? That makes me cry. Uh, a lady pulled up and said, knocked at the door. Jean opened the door. She's holding Sarah or holding, I don't know. And she says, are you Jean Bond? She said, yes. I said, this is for you. And Jean said, what is it? She said, I can't tell you. She said, what's your name? She said, I can't tell you. She said, what's this from? She said, I can't tell you. Jean said, is there anything you can't tell me? But anyway, so uh, she got in the car and drove away, and Jean opened it up, and there were 10 $100 bills that paid for that. We, to this day, we still do not know who gave us that money. Does God do things like that? One more story. I'm at Dallas Seminary. I have no money. I go to my box, the mailbox, first time I've ever opened it. I got a letter. I opened it up. It was from State Farm. Because you've moved from... Mississippi to Texas, you owe an additional $92 on your insurance. I went, $92? I have no money whatsoever. I mean, no money whatsoever. I spent every bit of money to get into school and to pay my first month's rent of that little apartment and everything. And I thought, how am I going to come up with $92? I just have to trust God. So I come back about two days later, and I look, and there's another letter in my box. I open it up. It's from Nap Clark, my old pastor. I open it up, and he says, JB, somebody thought you might want this. It was a check for 
$92. Not $95, not $100, not $90, $92. That's happened in my life hundreds of times. I mean, I could tell you another story, but we're going to run out of time, and you probably want to do some Bible questions anyway. But the bottom line is, you have to trust him, and he will bless you. Okay? So finally, last thing. Let's get this last thing. Uh, contentment. Wow. It's so easy to be caught up in our world and not have contentment and just pulling on us all the time. We brought nothing in. We take nothing out. So how do we focus? How, how, do we get, how are we content? Number one is seek the eternal. Just realize that Matthew 6.33, but seek ye first what? The kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. The, the things that are added to you are the basics of life. So we don't just, it, just be content. Trust God. Seek to live for God. The second thing is to learn to be content. Contentment is not something that's natural. It has to be learned because we have a flesh. We live in a fallen world. We naturally, naturally want more and more and more and more. And we just got to learn that, listen, what we have is plenty. In fact, I, I'm just telling you, I'm getting to the point, I like to get rid of most of the stuff. It's just too much stuff. And so I've already gone through my closet three, four times, and I said, I don't, need, I don't wear this one, I don't wear this one, I don't wear this one. And I'm in T-shirts, we're bringing them. I mean, that's what you got to do. We got so much stuff. Right? And so learn to be content because it's so easy to go, ooh, ooh, look at those shoes. This will be my fourth pair of orange running shoes. You know? I think three's enough. Maybe two's enough. Maybe one's enough. Who knows? Learn to be content. That's what Philippians Paul said. I've learned to be content. Whether I've, I've, I've known what it's like to have a lot. I've known what it's like to not have much. I've learned to be content. The third thing is this. In wisdom, recognize the difference between needs and wants. Because we all say, I need this. And sometimes what it is, it's really we just want it. And we don't need it. There's certain things we do need. Food, clothing, shelter, those kind of things. But there's a lot of things that we just want. And, and by the way, there's nothing wrong with having things. Just be wise. Use it wisely. Remember, you're going to stand before him one day on how we use what he's given to us. We don't always think about that. But remember, it says, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall give praise to God one day. We'll, each man will give an account of himself to God. Not only how you used your spiritual gifts and how you used your time, but how you used your stuff. Because he says, you're my steward. Almost every one of those parables, I gave this guy ten talents, this guy five, I gave this guy... He, all of these are things that he gave us to use, and then we're accountable. So one day, we're all going to be accountable. So when we look at this study for the last three weeks, let's take control of our lives. Let's see who we are in Christ. We are children of God and secure in Christ. Let's think about our time. Take charge, using it wisely. The days are evil. Be wise in the, in the decisions that we make. We have a lot of freedom. And then last but not least, be content using for eternal the things that God has given to us. Let me pray. And then I've got two Bible questions that we can go. And we've got about, about six or seven minutes. And then we'll... we'll um, uh, take some more questions. Uh, Heavenly Father, when we think about our lives... We are your children, and we are secure. Lord, you've given us a certain amount of time. May we use it wisely for your honor and your glory, living wisely with the decisions that we make. And then finally, Lord, everything we have comes from you. May we, give it, may we, may we use it wisely, knowing this, that we'll be accountable, and we thank you for it. Uh, we we want to give as an act of worship, love, and trust. We know that you bless us. We know that you give because you told us to, and it's a, a great privilege. And, Lord, we want our lives to count for you. So take us, Lord, and when we stand before you, we, we want to hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, two things. You may not know this, but Carolyn Johnson has this phone, and she's connected to a guy that she knows on the USS Nimitz. It's an aircraft carrier. And for the last two to three Sundays, she's connected with the people there. And so they have been listening to our messages. So two Sundays ago, 500 sailors on the Nimitz listened to our Sunday morning. Last Sunday was 400 and something, wasn't it? Okay. Yeah. 200 and something for Sunday school, but 400 and something. So you realize that she's got her phone sitting out there, and people on the USS Nimitz aircraft carrier are listening to our service. Well, one of them had a question, had a Bible question, and one of it was this. A person like Jeffrey Dahmer, who is a serial killer and a cannibal and all that kind of stuff, and the question could be, is he so bad, so to speak, that he could not go to heaven? In other words, he's so bad. Is that the question sort of? It, the question is, if he believed in God, he's, he's so bad he could not go to heaven. So he's so bad he could not go to heaven. And so the bottom line is this. 
If he put his faith in Jesus Christ as Savior, what does he have? He has eternal life. And so the truth is this. How many sins does it take to eliminate you from having eternal life? Uh, What now? Okay, well, okay, that's a great question. So when we sin as believers, and, and, and let's, say, let's say that he's, he does, let's just say, here he is, he does horrible, horrible things, and then before he dies, he trusts in Christ, right? Does he have eternal life? Yes. When he stands before Jesus, is Jesus going to say, well done, good and faithful servant? No, no, most likely not. So he won't have rewards. She said, will he be punished by Jesus? Where are our sins? Even Jeffrey Dahmer's sins were placed on Christ. So when a Christian, when a believer stands before Jesus, it is not for our wrongs. It is for did we live righteously in God? Do we have rewards? So when he stands, let's just say when, if he believed in Jesus Christ, we don't know if he did or not. We don't know anything about it. Somebody said that he got baptized before he died. What does that mean? We don't know what that means. It means absolutely nothing as far as I'm concerned unless he actually trusted in Christ and then got baptized to show people he'd put his faith in Christ. Maybe he is a Christian. Maybe he is with the Lord, but I, but you know, if Hitler, I'm just making this up. If Hitler had trusted Christ, there's not going to be any rewards there. I mean, let's face it: when you live an evil life and you kill millions of people, whether you believe or not, if you don't believe, you 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 know, you're separated from him anyway because you don't have his righteousness. Uh, so the bottom line question is: how how bad a person is is no basis for whether a person has eternal life or not. Eternal life is a gift by faith alone and Christ alone. So if a, we'd say a very bad person does evil things, if they believe in Jesus, they would have eternal life. The big difference is going to be when they stand before Christ, what kind of rewards, what kind of life did they live? For some of you, when you stand before Christ, he's going to say, well done. And that's going to be different than somebody else. Well, the sin, the sin that's unforgivable is what we call the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And that's not a sin that you do that's unforgivable. It, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is attributing the works of Jesus Christ to the devil, which means when Jesus did his ministry on the earth, he was controlled by the Holy Spirit. And when they said, you're doing your works by the devil, that's called blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And the reason it's unforgivable in the sense unforgivable because you're not trusting in Christ. You're saying that Jesus is from the devil and he's not the Savior. And that's what Jesus meant when he said that. It would be hard for anybody to do what we call the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit today. You'd have to say this. When Jesus was on the earth, he was actually from the devil. And so you're not trusting him as your Savior. Okay. All right. We got, let, me, let me do one more question here. Oh. What is it? Somebody just said, what does it mean when it says in, in Philippians, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling? Because... To work out, I thought we already saved, and it's saying to work out. Well, first of all, it doesn't say work for your salvation. It says work out your salvation. This is a Christian life passage. This is like sanctification. There's justification, sanctification, glorification. There's there's justification, which means we trust Christ and we're saved forever. Then we are being saved as we live our Christian life. And this is a verse that says work out your salvation, meaning you're a believer. And this word work out means from the inside out, he's actually saying, live out who you are. Because he goes on to say, uh, be, be lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation as when you shine as lights in the world. So in this Philippians passage, when he says, work out your salvation, you understand there's a past salvation, a present salvation, and a future salvation. Past salvation is called justification. Having been justified by faith, you have peace with God. The moment you trust Jesus Christ, you're saved and saved forever. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved. Past tense. This is a present tense salvation. Work out your own salvation. Present tense, meaning living out your Christian life to show that you're a believer. And then there's a future salvation, which is glorification, which which Jesus Christ changes us, and we're completely glorified in him. That would be the passage in Romans 13, where he says, our salvation is nearer than it's ever been. We're not talking about eternal life salvation. We're talking about future salvation. So sometimes when you see the word salvation... Look in the context. Is it past? You have been saved. Is it presence? Work out your salvation. Or is it future? Your salvation is nearer than it's ever been. 
And if it's past tense, it's almost always justification. If it's present tense, it's almost always sanctification. And if it's future tense, it's almost always glorification. So I know those, sometimes those words are a little bit hard, but the bottom line is you, if you've trusted Christ, you're saved, and you're saved forever. And to work out your salvation means to live out who you are as a Christian. Okay, that's the two questions I had. Anybody else have a question? We got about three minutes. Anybody got a question? Okay, what if a person takes, yes, okay. Great question. What about a person that takes their own life? Because I remember even growing up, people used to say things like, if you killed yourself, you'd automatically go to hell. I uh, did a funeral for a little girl who had trusted Christ and actually killed herself, and I did a funeral, and, and she was in high school, and it was completely packed with young people. And I told that she had trusted Christ and she had eternal life. And that night, a drunk high school kid called me at 3 in the morning and challenged me and said, how could you say that she's in heaven? Everybody knows that if you kill yourself, you automatically go to hell. No, the truth is no. When you believe in Jesus Christ, what does he give you? Eternal life. What if you did kill yourself? Is that bad? That's bad. Does that cancel Eternal life? Of course not. No sin that you do has anything to do with your salvation. You're saved by faith alone in Christ. So if a person were to take their life, it is a tragedy. It is so sad. They're so confused. But if they have believed in Jesus Christ as Savior, they're with him. Okay. Does that help any? Any other questions? Got one. Got about a minute. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's a great question. This is a good one. Okay, she said there's a person that... Knew that had believed. Best we know, the person had trusted Jesus Christ as Savior. Okay, person trusted Jesus Christ as Savior, and then as they got older, they begin to deny it. They turn away from it. They even say bad things about God and Jesus, and they say, "I don't believe any of that stuff anymore." And our question is, what happens to a person like that? Do they do they cancel it out? I mean, what happens when they die? Well, when they believed in Jesus Christ, what did they get? Eternal life. And how long does that last? It lasts forever. So even it, the Bible doesn't say, if you're faithful, you will be saved. It says, because God is faithful. So here's whoever this person is. They believed in Jesus, and then they turn away and actually reject him later. They still have eternal life. Now, when they stand before Christ, what's going to happen again? He's not going to probably say, well done, good and faithful, because they weren't good and faithful. So the best thing we know is once a person trusts Christ, They're saved forever. And salvation is not based on lifestyle. It's not based on what we do before or after. It's all based on Jesus Christ.